Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm Ernst Anthony. This week, one last time, we travel up north to see what's going on with Jon Snow. To help me do this is archaeologist Aaron Brummett. Aaron and I first struck up a relationship by email. He's a listener to the show, and he corrected me on a crucial mistake that I made regarding corn in the Middle Ages. And I was just so confident that I was right. So anyway, Dr. Brummett kindly corrected me, and I appreciated it so much that I decided, I will have him on. So we'll talk about the nature of that mistake that I made in this episode. After I talk with Dr. Brummett, I have a very special interview with my friend J.J. Hollenbeck. J.J. is a filmmaker who has been working for a company that rhymes with Schmizny for the last 30 years, mostly related to the Broadway end. But it's possible, and I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to say about this, that we will see a project that Jay's been working on on a major streaming service soon. I'll be sure to mention more about that when the details are available to the general public. Anyway, I hope you enjoy that conversation. If you'd like to check in with Steve and I and see how he's enjoying the final episodes of Season 8, do a search for Double Dragon wherever you search for podcasts. All right, without further ado, here is archaeologist Aaron Brummett. Aaron, do you feel like reading the chapter this time yields new information for you? Or do you feel like, yeah, this is kind of what I remember happening? No, I first read this book in... Soon after it came out, yeah, and had not read it since. And I saw the television show more recently, yeah. And then reread and rewatching this for today, I, I think I had a lot more insight. I think it was probably one of those kind of chapters where it's like, okay, they did that next. What's exciting happening? But it laid the groundwork for a lot of. A lot of stuff to come. I think so, too. And I was thinking you could, because I was writing up my little synopsis here, and I was thinking, you know, you could say that not a lot happens in this chapter. You know, he John, John rides south. He gets persuaded to go back. He goes back. It's the whole thing is a big circle. And not, you know, the plot isn't really moved along all that much with this chapter, but it occupies some really important real estate. You know, it, it's kind of framed as a really important chapter right at the end of this book. And so from one perspective, you could say, yeah, not a lot happens, but then you could also say a huge 
a momentous shift happens in John's personal motivations. Yeah, it's a coming of age story almost. It's sure. he definitely comes off as a immature is not the right word. Well, he yeah, um, he grows up. <laughs> Yeah, he sounds like a teenager. And it's like, it's not fair. I want to do this. They're they're breaking their oaths too. No one's going to cut my head off. You're right. And Rob surely wouldn't cut my head off. But by the end, he's a man of the Night's Watch. He's yeah his place in the world. Yeah, these chapters don't have titles, but you could title this, you know, Jon Snow Grows Up. Yeah. Because if you look back into the previous Jon Snow chapter... You know, he it's this momentous occasion where Lord Mormont bequeaths his family sword to John. And uh, you know, he says, you know, it's gonna need a man to yield to wield this sword. And what does John do? He kind of well, and he's a brat about it. He's like, Yeah, but I'd rather yeah. have ice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He leaves the room and he's like totally a teenager about the whole thing, right? Um and I think it took it took some resolve to actually leave the Night's Watch to, you know, knowing that he might die. And it also took some resolve to return and decide to stay. And so you're, you're totally right. This is a coming of age story for sure. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to read this synopsis and we can talk more about it. John prepares to desert the Night's Watch as Sam pleads that he stay. But John won't be persuaded. He rides to and through Molestown and imagines his life as a fugitive. Whatever his fate, he must, he is convinced, help Rob to avenge Eddard Stark. Ghost leads the road to hunt while John stops to eat. Then John is discovered by his fellow recruits. All save Sam have tracked him down and aim to return him to the wall. John decides not to fight and returns. The next day, Mormont convinces John to stay and declares his intentions to take the Night's Watch north with force. He also comes to terms with the fact that he cannot help Rob, Arya, Bran, or his father. He vows to Lord Mormont that he will not run again. So, Aaron Brummett, what shall we talk about? Do you want to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? Let's do chaos. There's a lot of small themes in this Chapter. Good, yeah. You you go first. What what's the first small theme? The first small theme I think is did Ghost turn John in? Is, is Ghost really <laughs> right. a traitor there? He does call him a traitor, doesn't he? He calls him a traitor, yeah. and his path seems to be that he led the boys to John. Uh huh. And at the end, Mormont seems to know something about the Starks and their their wolves. Oh, interesting. And he wants the wolf there with him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So I don't know whether or not this is um I don't know I don't know whether or not you could sort of foist any intentionality onto the onto the beast, but here's what I think we could say pretty safely. Literarily speaking, Ghost is something of an avatar for John's link to the first men, right? So in that way, you could say John's spirit animal knows the right path, even if John's sort of cerebral mind doesn't know the right path. Yeah, I was trying to maybe assign a more a tighter connection there. Like if he's having wolf dreams and 
has warg-like affinities for the wolf. Maybe there's a piece of his subconscious there. We learn later. Yeah, in the, that's that's a good way to put yeah, it. Yeah, we learn later that through Bran and the other warg that a piece of you stays in the wolf. Right, yeah. So that's a different way to put it. That's a kind of more uh, a psychological reading of it. So we could say something like, John projects part of himself into the animal, and that's that's the part of him that re- that knows, even though he's convinced himself otherwise. He he kind of knows where he belongs. He doesn't belong south. He belongs north. Belongs north, or even saw the guys watching him, heard the fellow recruits tracking him down, knew that that I don't know. It, no, no, I like it. it. I like it's I, just a few sentences, but I, I kind of felt like. Ghost turned him in. Yeah, he does. He does turn him in. Yeah, that's that's a. That, no, there's no doubt about that. You're right. So you could almost say that John betrays himself. I don't know. There's there's no indication, at, you know, in sort of the surface of his consciousness that he's. You know, we don't we don't really get an indication uh, that John wants to get caught, but. If Wolf is an extension of John, then he absolutely wants to get caught. John knows if he gets caught after that night, he's getting his head cut off. Okay. <laughs> as much as he wants to deny it, yeah, he knows what Rob's going to do. Rob's <laughs> going to cut his head off. Wow, uh, yeah, he there, does? Okay, that's great. I'm so glad you mentioned that. There's no, there's no way that story ends with John not going back to Castle Black and keeping his head. All right, I'm going to read this passage because I think it's it's an interesting realization I think John has. He remembered Rob as he had last seen him standing in the yard with snow melting in his auburn hair. John would have to come to him in secret, disguise. He tried to imagine the look on Rob's face when he revealed himself. His brother would shake his head and smile and he'd say, he'd say, he could not see the smile. As hard as he tried, he could not see it. He found himself thinking about the deserter his father had beheaded that day. He, they found the dire wolves. So he's trying to convince himself that Rob is going to welcome him warmly with a smile and say, Oh, shucks, John. I know you deserted the Night's Watch, but uh, we, you know, we need all the help we can get here in the Riverlands. But he kind of knows that that's not the, how Rob is going to react. Yeah, he, he. That's why I, I, I think it's a, it's still a, an adolescent John doing that thinking. He's it's it's John. It's a teenager trying to justify something that's not real. Because I was thinking, yeah, it's interesting that you say you think that Rob is going to cut off his head, or that John knows that. Because what I was thinking is, what are Rob's options if he if this all does play out? One option would for is for him to legitimize his brother. He's you know here's the de facto Lord of Winterfell. Couldn't he just say, "I name you John Stark," and so you're not beholden to the Night's Watch anymore? I mean that right that, that could that's one option, right? Yeah, that that is an option, but I I don't think that's the likely scenario because. With the Umbers and the Karstarks yeah. standing there, he's got to—he's got to lay down the law. Yeah, he's, that's true. He's, heads need to roll in that scenario. Oh man, yeah, yeah. Gosh, I was thinking about Rob 
in this chapter and how Rob is sort of had to grow up, but for different reasons. We really have not, you know, spent any time with Rob since we've learned that Ned has been beheaded. But he's sort of learning to be a lord and playing politics and stroking egos and making hard decisions. And it's this moment, and I think I think we have seen, been watching John grow up a little bit too, but there's this galvanizing moment as soon as Ned is beheaded. It's like, you two have to grow up right now. Yes. And so for the very reason that John wants to go south, that is the same reason why Rob would have to take off his head. Yes. there's. I, I just do not see a scenario where Rob can be the leader of the army and not kill John without causing a lot of antagonism, without antagonizing his men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One thing I noted as I was reading is uh, there's a couple nice little clues as to John's true parentage in this chapter. You know, little bits of information that we get that we read differently, knowing that he's actually a Targaryen. Go on. I I didn't catch that. So he says one of the reasons he says the real reason he left the wall to become a deserter. And these are his direct words. He says he was, after all, his father's son. And I think what John thinks he means, in John's mind, that means I'm Eddard Stark's son. I have to go avenge my father. But you could read that differently. If he is his father's son, then he's he might play fast and loose with his vows because that's exactly what Rhaegar did. You know, he sort of abandons his wife to run off with Lyanna, and he's kind of playing fast and loose with his vows in that way. Uh, and so you could say, well, why, you know, why does he desert the Night's Watch? Well, he's his father's son. He broke an oath, too. That's right. That's right. And I think, I mean, I think that you, I mean, it's one of these little things that you absolutely will not recognize on first read. But it's an interesting way that this chapter begins in that it doesn't really tell you directly that John even knows that Ned has been beheaded. You know, we have the chapter previous where Bran actually gets the raven, right? Right. And I guess the presumption is that Sam has gotten the note and yes. told John. Yes, that's right. But yeah, they don't reference it. But given Sam's presence in the stable, that's right. presumably that conversation started in the dining room or something and he dropped that's off right. his sword and went straight to the stables. Yeah. And it's one of these little things that Martin will do from time to time is that because this thing is pieced together with a mosaic of different perspectives, you know enough to know that the Raven has traveled far enough north to Winterfell that you could also conceive that a Raven has flown all the way to the wall so you so that you don't need to tell the story of before the Raven gets there and to see the Raven get there. You already got that story with Bran. And what you really want to see with John is sort of the the reaction to that news. It's very it's a very um, subtle, but I think interesting way to leave out information and expect more from your reader, I think. Well, when I first read this book and the others, I was unaware of Martin's history in writing for television. But oh. it comes off in a lot of chapters that that they're written with cliffhangers um end of scene cliffhangers Mm -hmm. where 
if it was television, there's a perfect time for a commercial or there's a perfect time to end an episode. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's definitely his style. And I think uh, we don't need to show this a hundred times. We know they get Ravens. Right. The other moment that I, I read differently this time around, because I know that he's a Targaryen was right at the very end of this chapter. You're, this is Mormont talking. He says, your Lord Father sent you to us, John. Why? Who can say? Why? 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 The raven called. So, of, co- of course, you know, it could just be the raven. But that's kind of the question that I think that we as readers are supposed to be asking. Why did Ned send John to the wall? Why did he allow this 14-year-old to go to the wall? And the reason why you know, we know in retrospect is because he has a claim to the iron throne. And that's why, you know, he had to send him North to save his life. But of course we don't know. And of course, it, and, and Martin is kind of hiding that little why question right at the end of this chapter. Let's see the Raven also. Um, I think he repeated why and corn three times but all the other times he reports things he right. simply reports it once that's right. <laughs> we should talk about corn that's kind of how you and i met yes um yeah so i i have said several times on this podcast that it's kind of comical that uh that, that this raven is wanting for corn when in fact in any any sort of version of medieval europe that this is sort of anachronistic now and you and you please do uh, tell me how this could possibly work. I, I would I appreciate the the insights of a professional archaeologist on this. Well, um, corn, at least as as far as colonial England, meant a variety of things that are harvested as kernels or seeds. So, for example, the British Corn Law of eighteen fifteen set prices, and this is a quote, set prices of the various sorts of British corn. And then through um, section three, they provide the import and export duties for wheat, rye, peas, beans, barley, and oats. So all of those things would have been considered corn by statute, at least in 1815 Britain. Okay. Um, the German word for kernel is corn with a K. And so the, this word means harvested seed or grain. Sure. And so it could be wheat or barley or oats, most likely. Yeah. Okay. So let's say I'm sitting at the table, uh, 1400s England, and I say pass the corn. It very well could be that you pass the barley because that's what we both meant by corn, right? Yes. All right. So that so there's that. So if we want to if we want to be generous, we could say, you know, this this uh, raven is asking for corn, and Lord Mormon is, you know, flicking him little grains of uh, barley or something like that. Bird seed. Yeah. They're, fe- sure. they're feeding them. Um, they're probably feeding them a variety of things because it's a bird. It also eats an egg, which is weird. <laughs> but um, but uh, they're they're giving it bird seed, right? Um, right. Whatever leftover 
seeds are there and that's what the bird knows as corn. All right. Yeah, sure. The other thing I wanted to ask you, uh, I need an archaeologist to help me with this too, is I noticed for the first time in this chapter that three-fourths of Moletown is said to be subterranean, which, you know, makes sense in terms of sort of the climate, right? Sure, because it would um, keep you out of the cold weather, but being underground is a thing a lot of people have done in a lot of places, um, because the ground's not cold. It's, well, where I'm at now in North Carolina, it's usually about 56 degrees when you're in a cave. Yeah, yeah. It mitigates, it either mitigates an extreme climate in either direction, right? Right. So one from pop culture that probably all your listeners will know about is um, Mata Mata in Tunisia, inland Tunisia, not right on the coast, is where um, the original Star Wars was filmed, the Tatooine parts. Oh, yeah. So So the subterranean house that Luke Skywalker's childhood home was a real subterranean house. Yeah, right. Okay. No, I did. I did not know that. That's uh, that's interesting. And so they went back to the same one to do Attack of the Clones. Probably less of your listeners have seen that, but um, <laughs> they. I mean, it's quite nice. It's not a hole in the ground. It, right. It's um, plastered and lime washed walls. It's very nice. The um, and I don't know where I, I heard it, so I can't cite it as more than rumor. But the Troglodytic caves in the Loire Valley are the most famous, but there's others, some in England, um, some up near Normandy. Maybe Tolkien visited these and was motivated or had heard of them. He traveled the world. He was born in South Africa, had been to the Swiss Alps, um, you know, spent most of his life in England. So um, there's, he had an opportunity to have seen some troglodytic caves, if not the ones in the in the Loire Valley. So this and, is probably where, or maybe where he got his idea for sort of a, a hobbit hole kind of. A hobbit hole, perhaps. I've heard that that's where the, um, he got his idea. I also read that um, he worked as a, on an archaeological dig at a place called Lydney Park, where they found a gold ring that had runes and curses oh nice and um under and and that roman fort was built over an iron age fort that had tunnels under it so somewhere or another tolkien got the idea for underground hobbit holes yeah and and i kind of thought that this might be a way of martin subverting that idea Uh, right yeah yeah, you had mentioned in an email you had said I think this is maybe Martin's idea to subvert Bag End by having a whorehouse and a red lantern. I thought that's exactly the kind of thing that Martin will do, right? He'll take something in Lord of the Rings and kind of make it an R-rated establishment. Yeah, it's um, if you want a hobbit hole, I'll give you one. But yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean comfort. It means an outhouse with a whorehouse underneath it. And on top of that, at one point in this chapter, the people from Molestown are called small people. Which is sort of a your generic, small folk. Yeah, yeah, small folk. Which is kind of, uh, you know, your generic term for, you know, non noble folk in Westeros. 
But I do, but, I did get a lot of uh, Lord of the Rings vibes in this in this chapter. Yeah, but it's John suspecting that maybe he hears small folk when his brothers yeah. are coming up on him. That's right. But I wonder how often he would actually say small folk, given that he's not really royalty either. Yeah, sure, so, sure. Yeah, yeah, it seemed kind of like, yeah, like I said, Martin saying if you if you want a hobbit hole, I'll give you one. Right. So I think, yeah, so I got a, I got some Tolkien vibes in this chapter too. And I was a little disappointed because this is, and maybe, maybe the showrunners kind of noticed this as well, because my recollection of this scene in the show is that John escapes and he's tracked down by three friends. One of them, his name is Sam, and he's kind of a portly fellow. And then you have Pip and Gren, which, if you put those together, sound a little bit like Peregrine. It's almost... And so you you find these four travelers in the woods, and there's this camera angle that looks down on them, and they're in the woods, and they you know they, they look a little bit hobbitish. And so as I was watching the show, I thought, oh, this is a direct homage to Lord of the Rings. Um, you've got the four hobbits. But Sam doesn't basically. go with him. Yes. Yeah, Sam doesn't go with him in the book. It, yeah, in the books, it's it's like several. You know, there's like five guys that come and get John, and Sam's not one of them. So I thought it was interesting that 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 was a show specific homage. But it could be that there there were other little you know other kinds of Lord of the Rings homages in this chapter for sure. Um, any anything else along the ladder of chaos, Aaron? I guess at the end, John knows who he is and um, swears that he won't run away and he's going north. So he, he gets what he wanted in the end. He gets to ride out to battle and it's for the guy that's kind of being fatherly for him now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I felt like that made it full circle in that he was going to fight for his father's honor and it ends up his new father figure gives him a way to be honorable. And I like that line from, um, from Mormont when he says, you know, honor made you leave, but honor brought you back. John says, my friends brought me back. And then Mormont says, I think very wisely, he says, I didn't say it was your honor. So it was almost like one of these things where, his honor is tied to his tribe, which is a very ancient way to think. But what Mormont knows that John hasn't learned yet is that his true tribe is the Night's Watch. It's not the Starks. He's never really been a Stark. Right. And what Mormont also knows is that he knew he was going to leave the whole time. He had guards, <laughs> yeah. he had guards watching him. Yeah. He had talked to Eamon about it. And they they knew he was going to have to go through this journey and they were willing to tolerate it because they thought he was worth it in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally right. Totally right. I really liked that there was a moment when John thinks that he's, he's sort of fantasizing about how he will die gloriously in battle trying to avenge his father. Right? He thinks, I'm going to go down to war. I'm going to I'm going to fight. I'm going to avenge Edward Stark. And 
I may, you know, he says to himself, he says, he was no true Stark, but he could die like one. Right. He's thinking, if I die gloriously trying to avenge Eddard Stark, they will say that he didn't have three sons but four. Right. He's trying desperately to imagine this glorious death where, you know, in the end, he finally becomes a Stark. Well, and he's probably been taught by Eddard to think that way. You know, Ned definitely passed that on to the boys he was raising. There's a, there's a certain sense of um, honor in the idea of sort of avenging an unjust death. And of course, if it's your father, then, you know, it's your it's almost your duty to do that. Right. Um, but I like I like that you're calling out the fact that in truth, Mormont is more his father than Eddard Stark will ever be. Right. And I mean, he probably raised him it, it at least fits our modern conventions of a father a lot more in that you know ned raised him essentially at court mm-hmm. sitting in the back of the room right he called his brothers or who he thought he was was his brother stark so he was always kind of an outsider but you know mormont's really teaching him and being at at least a good mentor, if not a father figure. Sure. Yeah. And he gives him what he's what he wants. He says, look, you can be my squire. We're going to ride in force. You know, we're going to solve this, and this is going to be a big war, and I need you. And that's, that's right. what he really needed was not the revenge, but he needed to be needed and some adventure. Right. And he wants, you know... Mormont has made this gesture to give him Longclaw. He tried to leave Longclaw behind. Um, and eventually Mormont convinces him, you know, the war to the north is is just as important as any war to the south. And I need someone who will pick up that sword and keep it. And and John feels convinced by this. I'm just going to read this, uh, how this chapter ends, because I think it's it's kind of brilliant. John Snow straightened himself and took a long, deep breath. Forgive me, Father. Rob, Arya, Bran, forgive me. I cannot help you. He has the truth of it. This is my place. I am yours, my lord. Your man. I swear it. I will not run again. The old beard snorted. Good. Now go put on your sword. And that's the last we hear from the uh, the the wall the the plot at the wall from Jon Snow that's kind of how Jon's narrative ends in this first novel yeah all right notable introductions in this chapter we learn that the euphemism for going to the brothel in Moletown is called mining I thought that was interesting these men who are supposedly celibate at the night's watch sometimes We'll go mining in Moletown. Notable show differences. I already mentioned one. Did you see others? John left Longclaw in the book and yeah. takes it in the show. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was a matter of tone, but Mormont seemed real pissy that he had, had oh, ham yeah. for breath again. <laughs> yeah, you get the idea that he's having ham every morning. Kind of sick of it. Yes. There was no, uh, I guess there was really no depiction of, John going through Moletown, Molestown in the show. And on That's top of that. That's not in the show at all. Yeah, yeah. So so I, I appreciate that here. On top of that, 
it's it's really clear, as you mentioned, that Ghost gives John away, whereas that's not you know as as sort of typifies the show that the the wolves are usually less involved. Um, notable departures, I guess we could say that uh, John does depart, but then he returns. Uh, so that's how that goes, and it's a little there and back again. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about the uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, homages. This little this little chapter is a it's like a hero's journey, a microcosm of the hero's journey right in one little chapter. Certainly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members, with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is reward unto itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. things that excite you and you chase those until you know there's something else to do i'm sure at some point there'll be something else to do by the way i i love this show <laughs> I oh really i do. appreciate you saying that it's it's, <laughs> it's it's nice of you i mean it's it's bizarre that i have so many listeners like i have thousands of listeners and very 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 few emails really it's yeah, it's like the silent majority who are, you know, they're happy to listen every week. They would never, ever email me. So I'm super happy when someone is, actually does give me a little bit of feedback. It's it's uh, gratifying. It's it, it's my favorite podcast. It really <laughs> oh, is. Yeah. Um, oh, well, you now, see, now, <laughs> now your authenticity is, is suspect all of a sudden. Well, um, it, it's, I, well, I tell you, you know, it's funny you should mention the emailing you. I never do it. <laughs> I, I just <laughs> never course. do it. Um, yeah. You know, and mostly because I'm like, why would I be giving them free content? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I write sure. for a living. 
I, <laughs> yeah, keep it. You know, why would I want to do that? But your <laughs> show is it's different from everybody else's. You know, I, I love the, the humor of it, the scholarliness, the, uh, mm. the way you approach it. Sure. And yet it's so damn funny. <laughs> Well, yeah. no, I appreciate. I really do appreciate. Steve helped a lot with that, but I there's this thing with academics where they've got three different voices. I found like so the academic will have the one kind of voice that they use. It's like their public face. Like if you go to like a public lecture, mm-hmm. or if you go to like a conference, they'll they'll put on their you know super professional voice, and then there's the voice that they use with their students. And then there's the voice that they use in the hallway. And it's a voice that they reserve for other academics who kind of know that the other two voices are bullshit. <laughs> right. I mean, or it's not bullshit. It's just, you know, it is, it's a, it's a projection of some part of themselves, right? Right. A sanitized version or something. You know, when I was in grad school, I, I was a student teacher. So I've gotten up in front of oh, yeah, the yeah. college students you know. and yeah, <laughs> I taught. And, you know, you, and I was just a kid, you know, I was a year younger than a lot of my, you know, uh-huh. a year older than a lot of my students at the time. And, it, you know, you, you just, I just felt like a complete fraud in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> and right. yet at the same time, I, 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 you know, I did know things that I knew they didn't know. Um, well, you know, it's funny. It's funny how these things change over time because I've been at this long enough that, you know, some like my life of Brian jokes don't really work anymore. It's like, right. oh, you, you guys <laughs> never saw Life of Brian. All of my Jesus material is like out the window now. This is horrible. Right. You know? Right, right. <laughs> anyway, that. The idea here is that I think with the podcast is like, I don't think a lot of people get to hear that hallway voice. And I'm sure it's the same in your industry. It's like, so you've been, you've been working on, you know, translating and storytelling for 30 years now, right? Or more. Right. Yeah. And so if there was someone that sort of knew that business, and so you kind of had this idiomatic shorthand that you shared between that person... Mm-hmm. you would have to work a lot less to talk about it. Right. And that's what I call the, like, the hallway voice. Like if you were bumped into someone that you knew had been in the industry as long as you have, you know, you're not going to put on your interview voice to talk to that person. Right. No, I, I, that I completely get. You know, when you have a discussion with somebody who is in the business. Sure. You, it, yeah, you just, it's almost like changing dialects. <laughs> It is. It's a code switch for sure. And I think that there's something about, like, I kind of knew going into this, I kind of thought, if I bump into the hallway with a fellow academic, like maybe they're, you know, in gender studies, or maybe they're in engineering or whatever, but I know that they're watching Game of Thrones at the same time I am. Right. You know, we might talk shop for a little bit, but then it'll be like, did you did you see this week? You know, did you watch this week? And then all of a sudden, the conversation shifts. Right. And I thought if I could kind of capture that on a podcast, I think it would be enjoy. It, you know, it's it's a way. It's really selfish. It's a way for me to get to talk about 
one of my favorite topics. Um, but I thought maybe other people would be interested. You know, it's funny how that <laughs> what you think is an act of selfishness is becomes this act of generosity. The, the very fact that you share it with people, um, mm. and you you create this great podcast. It's really wonderful, and the fact that you just that you do it is is terrific. I well, I do appreciate it. coming from you. I really appreciate. It. All right. So, JJ, I'm fascinated with storytelling. It's like one of the great joys of my life. And so I can't wait to talk with you about the window you have into that. But I thought we could start by talking a little bit about Game of Thrones, if that's okay. That would be fantastic. So you're a dramaturge. You're going back 30 years. You know, you've been you've done stuff on Broadway. You're a filmmaker. I imagine that you see stories and think about stories with different eyes than us mere mortals. So about a year ago, you sent me an email and you said something that sort of stuck with me. I'm going to, I'm going to read it back to you. I don't even know if you'll remember writing this. All right. So you wrote Martin is big on characters inability to escape themselves. And I would love to hear you talk more about that. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> I know it's a long time ago. I it, it really, but, but it really did stick with me. Do you remember saying that? Um, it sounds like something I would say. <laughs> no. It was in relationship to like um, Robert Baratheon's inability to sort of not be Robert Baratheon, and uh, you know, Cersei's. You know, they just keep running into themselves no matter, no matter where they go. Right. Uh, you know, I'm a lot like that. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't, people can't help being what they are, you know, and that ultimately, it, you know, they're going to regress. Even if they try to escape themselves, they're going to regress and keep being the person that, that, that their essence is going to come out. You know, if you're going to bungle something, you're going to bungle something. If, <laughs> You know, your answer to all problems is violence. Ultimately, that's you're right. going to use violence, right? Um, particularly with those characters, and you know, Martin's characters are often like that, yeah. And I think it's something so simple, it's like, yeah, you there's a, a deep, deep seated character trait, it's kind of a simple insight, but ha- to, to put that on a page or to put that on a screen. It seems simple, but I'm, I imagine it's pretty complicated. Um, all characters are complicated, you know, because we're all more than one thing. But ultimately, you know, as a dramaturg, you're the god of that world. And you get to determine what these characters are. Right. And, you know, you label them with something. Um, yeah, but we all have met flat characters on the screen, right? Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, so that's I guess that's the thing I'm talking about. It, it feels tricky. It's like, of course, some of the gods of these narrative worlds seem to have imagined the conflict within the character better than others. And so, is the trick putting the character in a circumstance where they will meet themselves? Is that the idea here? Um, I, I think it's just a matter of consistency. You know. You, you know uh. that each char- each character they're ultimately going to be this 
this is, you know, Littlefinger is going to scheme. He's always going to scheme. <laughs> right. He just can't help himself. Yeah, he's, yeah, right, sure. <laughs> okay, so I've got this quote, and I, I was thinking about this quote relative to your quote. All right, so Martin was talking about how he follows Faulkner's advice, and he says, The human heart in conflict with itself is the only thing worth writing about. Right, so that's kind of a really sort of simple. It seems like, oh, that's simple enough. I'll, I'll just write about that. But it it also occurs to me that that's a really difficult thing to show on a screen. I wonder if the, if you're thinking about something similar relative to Game of Thrones, like where does this show up? Do you think in Game of Thrones in a way that makes you think, yeah, that I can see that's. That's what Martin was trying to do with that character. With every character, you know, you take Robert Baratheon. He knows what he does is morally wrong, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes. You know, like his conflict with Ned, where Ned is trying to get him to recognize, Robert, you don't kill children. You know, right. It doesn't matter. If they grow up and they come over here, we'll throw them back in the sea. You know, that conversation that Ned has with him, (laughs) Yeah, you know, and Robert knows it, you know, the scene that he, that uh, the double D's were with Cersei and Robert that gets referred to a lot, Um, you know, where it's just the two of them talking about their failed marriage. And, you know, they both know how badly they screwed this up. Um, And the brutal honesty of it is, you know, it's both humorous and tragic at the same time yes that seems just it's just brilliant and it's brilliant and for me it's like both of these characters are sharing a moment of self-awareness at the same time yes i think i mean that does bring out a bit of vulnerability there which also makes that scene work i think but in the book i don't often see Robert being very self-aware, right? And I don't often see Cersei being very self-aware. Like, for instance, like compare that scene to anything in the book, and I think there's something about that scene that does something fundamentally different with these characters. They're sitting, sharing a moment of mutual self-awareness and laughing about it. It's something that we never saw in the book. And for some reason, it absolutely works on the screen, you know? I think that's part of the difference of of translating something from, you know, from the page to the screen, where you have to dramatize it and humanize it, show that kind of vulnerability that everybody's got. Even if it doesn't show in the book, like, you know that, we know that Robert knows that what he's doing is often immoral and you know, for whatever his reasons, he just doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's part of the tragedy of his character. You know, the what happened with, uh, oh gosh. Oh, Liana, uh, that's that, right. Yeah, yeah. Liana, yeah. His, I'm blanking on a name. Um, There's you know, like 2,000 names in this book. <laughs> it's like... Right. <laughs> right. Go ahead. Um, you know, his, Robert's love, love for 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 her it's it's tragic and yet you really question whether i really question what you know how real it is and how much it's, it's in his imagination 
right. you know, you know, we've had email conversations about theories on Robert and, and what he may or may not have done, you know, with Liana and what. Yeah, might... clearly he has a different view of that relationship than Liana does, right? But because right. Liana right, has been fridged, I suppose. You only right. ever get like Ned's perspective on Liana or Robert's perspective on Liana, but you know, you kind of know that Robert's full of shit. Like, <laughs> it's like right. part of who right. he exactly. is, exactly. <laughs> right, um, you know, and yet, you know, she was promised to him. Like that part is a fact, and right. his view of it is very medieval. You know that once she's promised to him, you know, uh-huh. he treats her like property. Um. And in the world that he lives in, that's hardly going to be unusual. You yeah, know? property um, that's been stolen from him, right? Exactly. Which is it's sort of more of like, I mean, he, maybe he is heartbroken, but he's also somewhat emasculated by that whole situation. Oh, absolutely. Oh, he's just, you know, the embarrassment of, you know, uh, her being named the Queen of Love and Beauty at the tournament is utterly humiliating um, for Robert and something he just can't live with. Right. You, know, you can tell, you know, and the way he responded to that, you know, if, if anybody raped Liana, it was likely Robert, you know, um, I just think that whole thing, it, you know, I'm really interested. I, for somebody who worked on Broadway for years, I, you know, the, my dirty secret is that I don't particularly like musicals. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> um, you're not supposed I, to I, say that out loud, JJ. Jeez. Yeah, I know. I, it's I, you know, worked in the Disney company for what, a dozen years or more, and I never liked musicals. It was a complete accident <laughs> that I ever wound up there. I mean, I love the theater, uh-huh. but musicals just generally aren't my thing. Okay. Um, you know, everything that came after Fosse. <laughs> It's just, I uh, just like cringe. Um, and, you know, and there are exceptions to that. You know, I have my short list of musicals Jay doesn't hate. Um, yeah. But it is, it's short. <laughs> um, at the same time, the the show that they're doing based on Game of Thrones that's set at the tournament. Yeah. Um, that I'm really interested in seeing because it's Game of Thrones. And find out. Well, what... yeah, I mean, it's always fun to see someone else's interpretation of it, right? It's like, I don't, right. I shouldn't say that. It's not always fun, but if if the person's good at what they do, right, it can be a fun experience to see. Oh, that's an interesting. I wouldn't have gone that direction, but I I like that choice. Um, there's a number of things that I thought that the uh, you know that the showrunners of Game of Thrones did, like the Cersei and Robert scene. There's a number of things that they did with the show where it was completely different, and it's a choice I wouldn't have made. But in the end, I thought, "Oh, that's actually a good choice." Um, but but it is it's always fun to me to see what choices people think are important to make. The double D's were really fantastic interpreters of of the books um, and extrapolating on that. Um, and as long as they had the the books to guide them they yeah. were fabulous i mean they made they made the best television ever those first four seasons and- no qu- there's no question oh my gosh yeah and i think that 
I think that those last few seasons were kind of a victim of the success of the first few because it was so good. Yeah, and it, they were they were so good, and maintaining that was <laughs> going to be really, really impossible, um, especially without the books to guide them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know what their conflict with George was exactly, and why George was like, "Okay, f you guys." Um, <laughs> but artistic people disagreeing that I, I've never heard of such a thing. Oh, it's shocking, isn't it? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, it's very interesting the way George R. R. Martin responded to that. Probably never know what exactly happened, um, unless you know you bump into George or one of the double D's and they are using their hallway voice. Yeah, sure. um, <laughs> yeah got it. but it was something, you know, uh, where jo- you know, clearly George said, Okay, guys, go ahead, hang yourselves. Um, and they did. I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm always kind of beating this drum, but I, there were moments in those last few seasons that were just brilliant. You know, I'm thinking of like Brienne being knighted by Jamie, you know, those, right. It's hard to fault a show that's sort of a victim of its own success. And yet, you know, there were a number of things that we all kind of had problems with in those last few seasons. You know, I went back and rewatched the the last season, and you know, at, at the time uh, we were watching it, I was watching it the first time. My brother and I, who's also a writer, <laughs> were just like, "Oh my god, what have they done?" Um, <laughs> you know, and he, I to give him credit, you know, he was the first one to go. You know, by the start of the seventh season, they're never going to land this. <laughs> You right. know, he could see it coming. Um, and I was like, oh, well, let's wait and see. Um, because <laughs> so much of the work they did in seasons, you know, five through the through the end was absolutely fabulous. Uh-huh. You know, um, uh, one of my favorite scenes ever in the show is uh, where Danny comes walking out of the fire. Um, yeah. And she's just this appears as this goddess and you know she manages to outsmart all the calls yeah right all these powerful strong warriors um with without her dragons you know just her brain and her gifts right and comes out of there like the goddess that she is and like i you know the audience should have gotten down on their knees at that point you know (laughs) (laughs) We all we all kind of did emotionally. It was sort of like one of those moments yeah. where, you know, she could be just this force of nature if she could just get rid of like that one guy who's leading giving her bad advice or if she could just get these dragons to grow up or she could just get this poor situation with Marine to go smoothly. Um there was always something in her way. There was always an obstacle. In that scene, all of a sudden no obstacles. It is just her as a force of nature and no one standing in her way. And the fact that she did it without the dragons, as you say, is it, just brilliant. It, it really is. You know, she uses her head. Um, you know, the only help she has are, you know, the two guys to lock the door. Yeah. Well, it's also know? helpful to be immune to fire. <laughs> that's, well, it's, well, right. that's a nice party but, trick. But that's her. 
Right. But that's her gift. You know, yeah. it that's the gift of, you know, it's like being a, one of the top, top athletes, you know, if you're going to play in the NFL or the NBA, uh-huh. you know, you are, are literally the best at one of the best athletes in the world. Um, yeah, Danny has sort of a unique a unique talent, or a, I should say a unique combination of talents, right? Right. Um, but one of the brilliant things about her is that you know these obstacles are there for a purpose. You know, you start to you start to root for her because right. you you can kind of see that in that combination of talents, and just you you want to see her flourish. And yet there are these obstacles in the way that you want to have removed. And then, of course, when that happens, you're just like, well, be careful what you ask for. Right. With Danny, she does have this this super gift, you know, that other people don't have. It compels you to think, well, maybe she is. Maybe she should be ruling. You know, clearly she's as capable as anyone um, mm-hmm. of of doing that job. And then she has this extra gift that's superhuman. Um, you're like, okay, you know, maybe Targaryens should be the ones ruling. Um, you know, it's the fantasy of this, of having a benevolent dictator, you know, who's all wise and all knowing and will always be fair and will always judge correctly. Um, and know what to do to Mm -hmm. lead people. But of course it's easy to conquer. It's hard to rule. You know, that rule is always what's, what applies to Danny and to any ruler who's sitting in the Iron Throne. You know, it, it's yeah. going to be an impossible job. There are people who, one woman that I know personally, who I think she she should be running for politics. Um, you know, she works in the business, uh, but I really think she should, you know, she should be president of the United States. Um <laughs> But at the same time, I would never wish that job on her. Right. Yeah. You you like her too much. You don't want to ruin her. Exactly. I, yeah. She's a friend of mine. I would never wish that on sure. her. Um, <laughs> you know, you're going to be hated, you know, automatically. Um, and now that people can write algorithms, you know, so people, so you always get Twitter hate <laughs> no matter what right. you say. Yeah. Sure. Um, you know, no matter how good you are, yet it doesn't stop people from wanting the job. Oh dear God! Right, I do wonder. So earlier, I I, I had this quote right. It's Martin quoting Faulkner: "The human heart in conflict with itself is the only thing worth writing right. about." And I wonder if that is part of the problem with Danny at the end of this show, because I think that there is something about her interior that wasn't communicated on the screen, right? There was something about like like we we kind of saw externally like yeah of course Targaryens you flip a coin they could come out crazy they could come out benevolent uh, you never know right but I never saw her talk about her interior in that way and I wonder if they did if they were able to convey that sense like that thirst for the easy solution, the immediate solution where you just, you know, burn it down, start over versus sort of knowing that in order to break the wheel, you kind of have to choose a different path. I never heard her talk about in that, in it, in a way that made me think, Oh, this is the Faulkner key that I've been waiting for. 
And so when she ends up making the decision she makes, that penultimate episode, I almost feel like I missed that internal conflict. Am I thinking about this correctly? You think so? Uh, oh, I, absolutely. And, um, you know, they completely skipped that step. I don't think that they think that they did. <laughs> sure. um, yeah, of course. But, but you're right. You know, I mean, part of the problem with that is, you know, the production of that show oh, was just a bear. Um, I can't imagine, well, I do imagine doing it. <laughs> but, uh-huh. uh, it, you know, the burnout level for showrunners is so high. Um, you know, a friend of mine, my college roommate, was the showrunner on the Colbert Report for the first eight seasons. Oh, is that right? And just the pace of it, you know, it's constant. It never stops. Well, that's a daily grind. I mean, geez. And then I, I shouldn't, of course, all of it's a daily grind. But the fact that you are ha- having to put something new, unique, and funny on the screen every day, I, I just can't that's imagine That's just that. It's impossible. I just can't imagine it. You know, um, he, he's a brilliant guy. Um, absolutely one of the funniest people I know. Um, you know, he started out on The Onion years back when we were in school together in, uh-huh. in Madison. And, you know, he was the editor that really made that paper. Um, this guy, Scott Dickers, had bought it. And at the time, it was just a newspaper, you know, um, uh-huh. which... If the kids who don't know, that was the internet before the internet. Sure. <laughs> we called them newspapers. Right. Yeah. And, and we actually, you could actually hold them in your hand and, uh-huh. you know, they had pages. I didn't um, know that the onion was just a paper edition at first. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Interesting. Um, it was a weekly in Madison and, and Madison, Wisconsin, um, when we were in school. And it was hilarious. And Rich Dom is his name. He made it that way. Um, he and this guy, Scott Dickers, together. Um, Scott Dickers bought the paper. He didn't actually found it. Um, he it had existed for a few years. And it was the same basic idea, but it wasn't nearly as funny. Um, the fact that they were able to every week come up with some headline that yeah. would just make you laugh out loud. You know, um, oh, it's the headlines. Like a lot of times, the headlines were were sort of the joke on the face of it. You like, like every now and again, Dana Carvey will talk about this. He'll say something like, "I like jokes where you tell people what's funny about it before you actually tell them the joke." Right. So now you're just sort of acting out the premise, and and they and right, right. In other words, you've decoded the joke so that now everyone's in on it. And I think The Onion did that tremendously well um oh god yes very very different very and i don't know how we got on this topic but very different than i thought the last few seasons of game of thrones where it was almost like everything's concealed right it was almost like we're gonna err on the side of not telling the audience right it's fear of tipping your hand they should know because we want this to be a big surprise right um and that reminds me of something else that you said in an email you know, I think we were talking about how a, a good story will put everything in place uh, so that when the reveal happens, it it's like, oh, of course, of course, that makes sense. I, I've seen all now I can see all the clues leading to it. 
Right, exactly. But to do it in such a way where, you know, the person doesn't guess what the outcome is before they actually read it or see it on screen. You know, and that's where Martin's really, really, he's just a genius with doing that. Because, you know, you want to make things, it should be both these reveals, you know, where you lay out A plus B equals, (laughs) and let the audience put together, you know, and you know, you show the result, but you, you don't have to tell them, you know, and in their minds, they're going to, they're going to knit this all together. Ultimately. Uh-huh. You know, it's something that should seem inevitable and yet a complete surprise. Uh-huh. And it's the surprise part of Martin that we're not guessing. Um, even though he lays out a plus B, you know, what you get in C is something just extraordinary. You know, like when uh, yeah. when Jamie loses his hand, oh my God! You know <laughs> the result, and the result of that, you know, it, well, of course, somebody ultimately was going to catch him and chop his hand off. You know, why <laughs> right. somebody? Yeah, in retrospect, that? you're thinking that's how you make that character infinitely more interesting. But it's something that mm-hmm. it would have never occurred to me. You know, so exactly. You know, and these people are brutes. You know, they're constantly, you know, <laughs> killing and maiming each other. Um, so, of course, that's going to happen. And yet, you know, it, it's it's from a completely different time where now that kind of thing is just horrifying. Um, and I'm sure it was horrifying back then, too, but in a completely different way, you know, not in a way that where it was beyond expectation, you mm-hmm. know, in a way that like you didn't want to b- raise your sword against yeah. these other people. Yeah, this um, is sort of a, a echo of a time period where you could lose your hand if you stole something, right? Um, or right. you could lose your tongue if you were insolent. The trick here is that because of Jamie's social status, it's totally right. unexpected, right? Someone of his right. elite status would never lose a hand. But every now right. and again, you run into a sort of a chaos creature. Who doesn't right. care about social rules? Um, uh, I do. Right. I do and want to transition here, JJ, to sort of your career as a storyteller. I know that we can't talk about that your uh, forthcoming project quite yet, but I do want to talk to you about sort of the process of it. Sure. Okay. So I'm kind of fascinated with this whole thing. So I've heard some people say that they look for conflict. So if you want to tell a story, you find the conflict. The conflict drives the plot. Conflict, conflict, conflict. And then I've heard other people say that all you have to do is kind of make the audience feel something. And so you kind of find an emotional connection you squeeze, in other words. And I'm wondering if, maybe this is one of those stupid both-and questions, but... I'm wondering if one of those resonates with you better than the other, or maybe you have a sort of a different guiding principle. I'm with the conflict crowd, I guess. Um, you know, I don't uh, want to make it sound every, like there's like it's a bifurcated or a dichotomy or whatever. Well, I'm just kind of right. curious to hear you talk about it. Everything to me is going to be based around our conflict with ourselves. Um, and ultimately then it becomes conflict with others. You know, but you're really, you know, characters are really constantly fighting their own natures, 
you know, and our own insecurities and our own disappointment with ourselves. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all, it can be very Freudian, but it's, that, that's where everything is based. You know, if you don't have conflict, I, I you know, you don't have much, have much of a scene. It's very difficult to come up with something, come yeah. up with a scenario dramatically. Um, yeah. This drama is about conflict, you know, where, you know, this character wants one thing, this other character wants another, you put them in a room together and, and now you have plot. ultimately something happens. <laughs> yeah. You know, sure. um, and when that something happens, it drives the plot uh-huh. and it takes that scene ultimately in the direction it's going to go. And that takes you into the next scene, you know, and it's, yeah. it's one thing after another and you build like that. So at least that's how yeah, I, yeah, I, I think I'm with you. Although every now and again, I'll run into some, you know, sort of a film by, I don't know, Terrence Malick or something where it's like the slow pan up a tree or something, or just, just clouds in a sky moving in an interesting way. And it's setting a mood. And I think that some people are impatient for that, but I think, and maybe it's just, it's just the quality of the artist, I guess, to create something that isn't immediately plot driving but important for the story that you're trying to tell. And it it just could be that it, it that a lot of people can't do that well enough to sort of keep the eyeballs, right? Yeah. You know, Matt, Matt Terrence Malick is is just a genius and exceptional at so many parts of cinema and storytelling. You know, his visual eye is fantastic and he put together those kinds of montages that get neglected a lot by people in terms of plot you know but the one thing about you know care about characters and conflict it's always about character and it's these it's their characters that drive the plot it's not the plot itself you know it's never the goal it's never about Hmm. the goal you know Hmm. um, ultimately it's always about the character um you know and the way they go about getting it because nobody cares about the gold you know, in a bank heist, it's just, it's just a thing, you know, right, um, right. you know, we care about in real life, but it's not real life. It's drama, you know, and it, it doesn't matter whether it's drama or, you know, it's comedy or tragedy. It's still the same thing. And you approach it in the same way. You know, it's different than doing stand up where you're telling jokes, you know, you're telling a story and whether it's a, whether you're using humor or, you know, you're using, you know, brutal violence or, anything that you're using that drives a plot, you know, you still approach it in the same way. At least I do. I, I don't know any other way. If other people have, it's because they're more talented than I am. Um, but I think Martin, you know, always approaches it that way. Yeah. Um, you don't get more brilliant than George. Well, that's Martin. right. And I think a lot of, I think that George can disguise it. I mean, what, what was the biggest topic of conversation during the show was who's going to, who's going to wind up on the throne, right? Who's going to wind up on the right. throne? But really, I don't think people care as much about that or tuned in as much for that as just to see these characters interact with each other. It was, it's such a character-driven right. story that in the end, we wanted these characters to conclude well. I know that this is a controversial statement, but... 
I thought that the show did pretty well with ending Littlefinger's narrative. I thought his trying to play Arya against Sansa at the end, thinking right up until the end that he was doing pretty well, that he was going to, you know, work these sisters against each other, just like he worked Kat and Lysa against each other, and sort of worming his way into Sansa's confidence right up until the end where he realized that he had been had. Like, to me, that was like, yes, that was the perfect end for that character. That's really what I was tuning in for. Yes. And, you know, and I, I, I had problems with the last season when he's, once Littlefinger gets to Winterfell, uh-huh. um, I, I thought they lost their touch with that particular character. Um, because it was just clumsy the way I thought that they did things. Um, you know, the, the idea was still right, but their execution was wrong. And I can't remember off the top of my head exactly, you know, the, the points where that made, you know, instead of making it, um, both inevitable, but not obvious, um, It was very obvious, you know, the, how he was screwing this up. And Littlefinger never screws up, you know. Right. Well, that, um, and maybe fa- you're smarter than I am because I was thinking, I think it worked on me in a way that maybe it didn't work on other people because I really did feel like this could go any number of ways. I don't think, I'm not sure how this is going to go. Well, you know, and the thing about Littlefinger, part of, I think, what made his original scheming work is that even though they, te- you know, George is, is great with um, the way he, uh, and the double D's and the way they introduce characters. And a lot of this is, I think, taken directly from the books. Um, at least the ideas are, uh, and the double D's put them on screen so well, is that they tell you exactly each character first time they appear mm. um, in that first season. If you go back, they essentially will tell you in like the first show exactly what they are you know with their first appearance yeah Yeah. you know for for a lot of great characters that'll be the case it's like right uh, okay you told me who you are now i'm gonna trust you for the rest of this trust you to be who you are in other words right and yet you know the way that they do it the little finger says he wants to sit on the throne but the fact that he's so far from the throne at that point it just seems like a ridiculous like a a, you know it's a joke and he's, it is a joke, but that he both, one that he both is telling on himself and yet really means at the same time. Uh-huh. Um, and, you're, you know, and we get that. And, but again, he's so far away from it that from actually succeeding at this point, at that point that we all go, well, but, you know, we'd all like to be king of the world at some point, you know, um, and, <laughs> sure. you know, God forbid we ever get the job. You know, right. it's, you know, it's, <laughs> and we see that in real life all the time. So, yeah, it really is sort of this odd, the more you try to control your world and the people around you, to, you know, mm-hmm. so that you can have an ordered existence, the more people will push back against that and think, no, I, I want autonomy here. I, I don't like, I don't like being in your orbit in this way. And so it's, it's this weird grasping problem. Right. So if if, yeah. if, a, if a political power 
is one of these things that's trying to hold everything together, you know, <laughs> in such a way. Right. You're always going to have people pushing away from it. So it, it's it's this weird balance. It's it's just this odd, odd balance. Now, one of the things that that was really compelling about at least the Game of Thrones on the screen was that you had so many different people that actually had a claim to the throne, right? So, you know, that that someone like Littlefinger would, you'd, you'd actually think, well, who knows? Maybe if he chooses to back the right horse, that person could wind in such proximity to power that you never know what's going to happen. Maybe maybe if he can, maybe he'll, he'll wind up on the iron throne. Right. And you know, that's part of certainly part of the American myth and part of the myth of freedom, right? Is that ultimately anything can happen if you believe that you're free. (laughs) And yet you're right. You're totally right to call it a mythology because most often, that doesn't happen, right? Right, exactly. And yet, the, the one time that it does is that's the thing we cling to. You know, it's that <laughs> exception. You know, the American right. exception. You know, um, the idea of exceptionalism and that belief is is fundamentally American. And, well, and I think, and you're probably the person to talk about this, but I think that that's that is the kind of storytelling that Disney that has made Disney so successful, right? It's like. Right. You know, let's let's take this person who a million to one shot at actually, you know, finding success or being happy or overcoming. Let's follow that person's story and rejoice when the impossible happens. Right. And let's get everyone to believe that this is the, you know, this is the kind of thing we should celebrate. Um people love that story. They do. We all There's do. a reason why we keep telling that story. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked, and they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. You know, it happens in American politics all the time. It happens in companies all the time. I've seen it happen fighting for power at the Disney company when I was there, you know, where Roy Disney did not like the direction that Mike Leisner was taking the company. And he, he had no power whatsoever, except his name and the fact that he cultivated his look. I mean, he looked remarkably like Walt, you know, and he cultivated that. Mm. Um, A whole different game of Thrones right there in Hollywood there. it was. I mean, that's going to be another show that I'm working on. Um, but um, it's a whole different thing. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I knew Roy a little bit. When I was first working at Disney years ago, um, I was working for this company that their deal was on the lot. Um, 
or in Kirkshank Productions. And Jim Kirkshank and I used to go out when he was young and stupid and used to smoke. Yeah, we'd go out and smoke outside their offices were in the old animation building mm-hmm. um, where Walt used to be housed and, you know, where his head is allegedly in the basement. Um, <laughs> there is no basement, incidentally. Um, <laughs> um, don't don't ruin the myth for us. <laughs> I, I know. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it's a little inside. That's a little inside baseball. But, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we stand out there and and would come Roy because his offices were also in the old animation building and he'd stand outside and he was a reformed smoker and just smell the air. Oh, um, and, and <laughs> by proxy, the smoking by proxy. Exactly. And, you know, and he would, you know, spend five, 10 minutes chatting with us. And, you know, he was a guy who literally, you know, bought his clothes off the rack at Kmart, but, yeah. you know, he, he did not spend his money there, and yet he drove Ferraris. Um, <laughs> it was very <laughs> odd. Um, and he would talk about, you know, problems with the new the new house that he bought, the new place that he bought. And you, he, you'd be talking along, you'd say, yeah, it's really damp, and, you know, I, how we can get that dampness out, I, I don't know how we're going to do it. And then you'd realize he's talking about the castle he just bought in Ireland, and and you just realize you're talking to a completely different cat um (laughs) that's hilarious it's like yeah no look man it's in ireland if you want to get the dampness now move it move the castle (laughs) move it to spain (laughs) right yeah that's funny um that's all right I'm curious about these processes so like i've got a couple dozen books that i've you know, had the idea for, I went from idea to print and there, you know, there's like 20 steps in, in, in between. Right. And so when I think about these things, a lot of times what I'll think to myself is what is this book about? And I'll have my own idea about the, what the book is about. And yet I know that I'm going to have to frame it in a particular way to a publisher to make them think that this is marketable. Right. So I'm wondering, do you go through the kind of the same process where like, for me, this is what the story is about, but this is, but I have to develop a certain amount of marketing language to make this, to sell this to a streamer. Yeah, absolutely. And you also have to get it in front of the right people in Hollywood. And I'm sure it's like this in other businesses too. There's dozens of people that can say no, but there are is often only one or two people that can say yes mm. um, and getting it in front of that person who can actually say yes and green light your show is mm. the challenge um, because there are so many people that are put in your way on purpose, you know, so people can't get to those <laughs> the people who can right. say yes. Right. You, know, you know, Hollywood is like this, this city with a wall and there are no, there are no doors or the doors only open from the inside mm-hmm. and somebody has to let you in. Yeah. The whole world's like that. Exactly. And Hollywood, it's, it's even more so because there are so relatively few jobs, you know, there are only going to be right. even now where there has been this proliferation of shows you know, like there never have been for, you know, there's what, 500 shows or something produced every year. Yeah. Um, 
you know, some ridiculous number, that's only 500, you know, and yet there are <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people, you know, if you knew the number of scripts that come in, yeah. um, uh, you know, and people with, you know, the beauty of, uh, the advantage people have now is, you know, they can make a movie with their phones. Um, you know, literally anybody can do it. It's become very, very simple and something that used to be a mm-hmm. lot harder. Um, you know, back when we used to have this thing called film, um, right. it was extremely expensive, even to do a short, short film. Right. So let's assume that you can, let's say you've got the, the know-how and if you're fortunate enough, to leverage your contacts to get in front of the right person to pitch your story. Right. How different is your story from the one that's in your head? Right. Is it, is it like, eh, basically, you know, here, here are the three acts and I don't really know what's going to happen in the third act, but I'm going to pretend like I do right now. Or is it pretty much like, no, this is basically a, a version of what I plan to put on the screen. You know, it, there's, there's a bit of a trick to it because you have to tell your story, right? Because you are ultimately going to be the person who's responsible for putting it on screen. You know, it has to be something both desirable and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's got to seem both inevitable and yet have a surprise to it. It, it, People, they they don't want to hear the same thing that they hear all the time, right? (laughs) Um, They want something different. And yet it has to be familiar enough that they understand what it is right you know right. that's what genres are all about you know it's, it's a particular type of story that it we're comfortable with we know what kind of story it is mm-hmm. and yet what's different about this show than any other show um that gives them a reason why they want to work with you particularly if you're a first time anything you know if you're, you're going to be a first time showrunner um you know it it's something that it's a very difficult job. Um, and at the same time, it's not hard. It's not, that, it's not that hard. You don't have to be a brain surgeon, you know, to be a showrunner. It's just being, it's about being organized and knowing how to organize right. a production, which is a big deal. You know, when you're orchestrating all these people and depending on the size of the show, they could be spending millions of dollars and there's all this risk. So you understand, you know, the pressure that you know any executive is going to be under if they green light your show um and you have to you know tell this intriguing story with some sort of you know, i don't want i'm gonna hate twist has become a part of like every single pitch um it seems sure. these days <laughs> sure. um it's almost become like a dirty word because it's become so cliche um yeah you know and yet you know it, there's got to be something different about the show you know um yeah it's a weird thing know, it's like it has to be like i think a lot of times especially with like a book proposal i think that there if you if you're new to it there's a temptation to to say this is so original this is you're going to want this you want this product because it hasn't been done before where I think right. a lot of people who are looking at these proposals are going to think, I can't sell something that's never been done before. Right. I can sell something that that I know what the cover looks like, and I know that this kind of title works for this kind of reader. 
So I need it to look close enough to something else that I know sells. Right. And I imagine that that's something similar to what you're talking about. Right. And, you know, I think, um, you know, when I first started in the business, you know, using comps was considered, you know, for people that didn't know how to tell their story. Yeah. Didn't know how to tell a story. Right. Um, <laughs> and yet it's become, you know, shorthand that people almost can't work without now, you know, where they want to know what comps are, you know, what the yeah. comps are, you know, what, what show is this like? And well, and it's even baked into algorithms now. It's not just about sort of uh, like, right. Explaining your story to a person. It's about putting this into a computer. So we know how to get this in front of the right eyeballs. Right. God, you know, and that's, it's part of the marketing, you know, and marketing <laughs> to say that marketing drives a business is like the understatement of the world. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, and yet it's got to be something they can sell. You know, if they can't sell it to people, if no one's going to watch it, you know, they're going to get fired. You know, that's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally. <laughs> so, right. um, sure. you know, they're putting a tremendous amount of trust in you. And that's why, you know, you have to build relationships in the business. You know, people wonder why, you know, the, the innate unfairness of the business in so many ways um, it's because you're going to work with people you're familiar with and yet, you know, can do the job because right. your job is on the line um, rather than taking a risk on somebody who really may not be able to do the job. And there are a lot of people that you think, Oh, well, yeah, they, they seem great. Um, they talk a good game. You know, they seem to know what they're doing and yeah, then they can they get deliver, out there. Right. Right. And they are a completely different creature when the pressure gets on them sure. you know and they just kind of fall apart um right. then it becomes nasty which makes for great drama if you're you know talking in the hallway about it right but it's not so great if you're part of that show oh yeah. god right right do you feel like how much do you feel like so you you've worked on some pretty diverse stuff like for so for instance you were sort of on the executive team for The Lion King for I don't know how many years right. on Broadway. Yeah, since it was in development. How much of what you learned there actually translates to these other projects you're working on? Or is it just such a different world that there's not a lot of lessons to be learned that carry over? Not, it's not that different, but the people are a different set. The people that work on Broadway work on Broadway. And you know, I worked for... It had we had dual offices at the time, so I worked in California and I was there primarily, you know. And yet, the business that I was in was it was certainly a big time entertainment and was run by the biggest entertainment company um, that there was. Mm -hmm. I, and yet, it wasn't the same people, you know. And, and I did talk to a lot of people from, you know, the film side and the television side. Um, in the job that I had, I talked to them all the time because especially when Lion King became this enormous hit. Okay. Let me ask you a different, let me, one last little question. I'm always been curious about this. All right. So the new, in the new sort of, uh, world that we live in where shows are about 10 episodes, I don't know when you find out if you've been renewed for a second season, but it seems to me that. By the episode 10, by the finale, you know, season finale, 
you want there to be a certain amount of resolution in your story. Mm-hmm. But you also want to keep the door open for a possible season two. Right. And I've always thought, like, as a viewer, I kind of want it like an 80-20 split. Like, I want 80% resolution, 20% opened up to another season. But I would imagine that as a showrunner, you think about it differently because, you know, you you really want to keep that door open for more work. Right. And that's something that you bake in to that first season, you know, where you know that in particular, it's going to have its conclusion, right? Um, It's defining moment at the end um, where all the plot threads of that particular year have all been building to this one place um, and ultimately are going to get tied up and resolved. And yet, okay, what is the result of that resolution? You know, um, you know, and part of Martin's work, that's a big deal. And he talks about, you know, what happens after Frodo ultimately gets home in mm-hmm. uh, Lord of the Rings, right? What's the result of this scar that you know, the possession of the ring has left on him? Um, and that all plays out. And that's going to be part of season two, right? Right. It, it's the drama that, that, can, that ultimately goes on after... You know, you declare victory for someone, and yet, what are the results of that? You know, how how are they actually going to rule? Because, right. you know, like like I, I said, you know, it, it yeah, the conflict I'm part is easy. Something like Jon Snow's plot, where it's like there are seeds planted in that first season that that are going to make him interesting as a possible claimant to the Iron Throne much much later, right? But even if the show hadn't been renewed, those seeds don't necessarily detract from sort of the overall narrative of season one. Like season one kind of works as a unit by itself. Right. So it's it's it seems to me it's tricky, and I'm wondering how much this kind of goes into the way you think about storytelling, how much of these sort of long-form arcs do you start building in that may or may not be developed if it's not picked up for a season two you're always going to bake them in season two is going to jump off from the results of season one right yeah um that's what's going to power that forward the results of i think you and jim were just talking about this the difference between rob sark being declared king and john snow and the different feeling of those two you know, where right. the first time with Rob, it's this thing that feels triumphant that at last they have their, you know, their king in the north is back. Right. Um, and with Jon Snow, it's like, oh, dear God, you know, we know that even if you get the job, <laughs> you know, it's something that you <laughs> it, it may be careful what you wish for. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's just a whole different vibe. And you know, you're going to bake that into the first season of any show if you have any idea what you're doing. And if you don't, I don't think you're going to sell it. Sure. So, yeah, sure. You can feel that in George's first novel, I think, where, you know, he's writing this story that clearly intends to go on. Um, and yet, of his novels, that's the one that feels like the most self contained, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. shorter and tighter. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, there's a ultimately a case of, you know, he where he doesn't know 
for sure whether he's ever going to be able to write the, the others. Um, so I mean, if people aren't buying the first one, you know, they're not going to publish the second. So uh, no matter who you are, and he was just another, you know, popular writer at the time. Right. Um, yeah. He had a lot of success, but not this kind of success. I mean, nobody has had this kind of success. Yeah, it's interesting with this first book, you know, of course, Ned, Ned has the most words and the most chapters. Right. And he's connected with the most character to the mo- most characters. And so in all of the ways that you would think of a main character, he kind of functions as a main character, even if it's a multi POV mm-hmm. book. Three quarters of the way through the book, dead, right? So uh, then the question right. is, all right, so who's going to fill the space? And it just so happens that Danny's exactly Danny's chapters start to c- start coming a little bit faster, and and she's getting mm-hmm. a little bit more complexity, and she's getting more speaking role, you know, more dialogue. And so you do feel like there's a momentum building for Danny. And the way that it ends, it almost feels like, well, now I have to look at it. I have to see where this goes next, right? God, George is good at that. You know, nobody, well, very few people have that kind of ability to make us feel that way. And to be able to stitch all that into this story where you Mm -hmm. feel like, oh, God, a guy, give me the second book, damn it. (laughs) Um uh, is, yeah, sure. is really it's really brilliant um jj this has been so delightful thank you so much oh, you're welcome I'd... um i would love to do this anytime you want to do this i love talking about stories that would be great <laughs>